Hello, everybody, and welcome to another one in our long-running series of financial well-being podcasts. And every time when we start recording, Chris switches it on, we start starts the recording, and this American voice comes over and says, recording in progress. So we've just been having a laugh about that. So our recording is now very much in progress or progress, depending on how you prefer to pronounce it. And the people making that recording are myself, David Lloyd, and my two co-presenters, your other people in my podcast life. Tell us about yourselves, Chris Budd and Tom Morris. Chris. Good morning, everybody. Chris Budd. I wrote the Financial Wellbeing book, a chair of the Initiative of Financial Wellbeing and of Ovation Finance, who sponsored this podcast. Tomo, who are you? Who are you? Yeah, uh, who am I? Good question. One that I'm not sure I figured out yet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's strange because we don't know who you are either. Time of the morning, the time of your life, or just a general existential angst you've got there, Tomo? You know, those who know me know that I'm not great in the mornings, and these podcasts are always recorded in the mornings. Uh, no, I've. Uh, can I can I just point out twenty to ten? We're not talking seven o'clock here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got a I've got a little bit of a phlegmy throat from my, uh, my my daughter's picked up another thing from nursery. So excuse the uh, <clears throat> the unclear voice. I am going to shameless plug, just like Chris just did. I am a chartered financial planner and director at Ovation Finance and also a director over at the Initiative for Financial Wellbeing. So if there's any financial planners or coaches or financial services professionals listening to this, please go and check us out where we talk about this subject and how we actually provide this type of planning and advice to our clients. There you go. Excellent. There's my, my plugs. Well plugged, Tomo. And also, if you're mad enough not to have read the Financial Wellbeing book, which Chris wrote many years ago, which was the starting point for this series – Dan, I suggest you go off and read it now because really that'll tell you everything that you need to know about what this podcast is all about. However, it won't specifically tell you about what today's podcast is all about because Chris Bird is going to do that right now. Today we have an interview with an expert on mindfulness, Martin Stepek. Ah, mindfulness has been very popular recently, hasn't it? And I, I know some people think it's all about just listening to the birds and things like that. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Um, in fact, I'm very excited because I've got goldfinch in my garden. They're beautiful birds, aren't they? Yes. Anyway, so nothing wrong with listening and watching birds. But actually, mindfulness is a very ancient discipline. It's a bit like yoga for the mind, you might say. Um, mindfulness experts might shudder in horror at that comparison, but that, that works for me. There's also some really scientific basis behind mindfulness. So it's very relevant to our relationship to money. And that's what we'll be talking about today. Excellent. But before we move on to that interview, we've got a couple of our regular features, the first of which is relatively new to the show. It's called No Shizzle Sherlock, in which we listen to the words of wisdom from a financial or investment guru and wonder whether this is indeed insightful and meaningful advice or whether it's as obvious as an obvious thing at an obvious festival. So, Chris, what's today's questionable market mantra? Philip Fisher was an American investor who published a famous book on investing in 1958. One quote that comes out of that book that's attributed to him is that the stock market is filled with individuals who know the price of everything but the value of nothing. Ah, now I know why this is in this section. But before I tell you how I know this, why don't we ask our investment expert, Tomo, to give us his opinion, his view on this? Hmm... I think he's onto something here. I think he's onto something. Um, I think we see it play out today. I think there is a big difference between 
investors who will explore a stock, will really look at the fundamentals of it. Is it a good business? Is it, is it uh, you know, got good good cash flow? Is it got, uh, you know, a good pipeline of business coming in? It really gets under the bonnet. And there are those that literally just look at the price and will trade on it on a day-to-day basis, looking at, oh, there's a pattern in the value of that stock. I think it might be a good time to come out right now and then go back in in five minutes' time. So there's, there's plenty of speculators who are trying to whip the value up of um, shares. So I think that's maybe where he's going to the point of the price of everything, but the value of nothing. So I think an investor who knows the value of something is likely to buy into it and hold on to it for a very long time. Now, one thing I would say is actually being able to study a stock or a company and understand whether it is really good value is incredibly difficult. And for the majority of uh, I dare I say the probably listeners to this podcast or, or the majority of people full stop, you know, that's something that's probably beyond their skill set because it's incredibly time consuming. Speculators, you know, the price of everything. Yeah, now I would include myself in that you're talking about, you know, I am the, the lay person in this podcast. And, and I think it's very true that uh, I've in the past tried to study the market, work out when to invest and when not to invest. But now I just hand it all over to you and you look after me very well. Mm-hmm. C- case in point, uh, I have this great app, the Ovation app that I know you use that where, where I can log on to that and just find out, you know, how much I'm worth. And you're always saying, don't log into it on a daily basis. And I don't, I promise I don't. But after the recent stock market crash uh, following the Ukraine war, clearly I just wanted to know what sort of influence that I'd had on my portfolio. I went in and discovered that, yeah, I'd taken a real hammering. And I thought, oh, well, I was expecting that. I don't know quite why it happened, but I was expecting it. So I just left it alone. And then about six weeks later, I went to look again. And, and lo and behold, it was right back up to where it was when, when we'd started off. Now, I don't know how that happened, but I know that it happened. And I know that you and clever people like you we're keeping an eye on it for me. Indeed, David. And um, we certainly try to do our best with your hard-earned money, as you well know. But we definitely fall in the camp of the value of something rather than the price of everything. You know, we we believe that uh, investing is something that you should be thinking about longer term. And I should say, actually, that we're not big fans of trying to pick the the best stock there is and and really trying to understand every single stock that's on the stock market and know which one's going to do what. As you know, we're, we're fans of building investment portfolios with uh, you know, index funds a lot of the time that are you know, investing very broadly in the market and yeah, are there to capture the gains that are available. Um, but I think, as you've alluded to, the key is riding out the wobbles when they come because they will. And unfortunately, None of us can predict when they come. Otherwise, quite frankly, I'd be sitting on a beach somewhere with my crystal ball rather than talking to you chaps. There's a good behavioural lesson from there as well, David, about the fact that when the stock market goes up by half a percent, nobody rushes to their investments to see what effect it had. But when you read in the news that billions wiped off the value of shares, you go and look. Both um, reactions are natural and behavioural, but both of them have absolutely no use whatsoever (laughs) Um, because you're not going to actually take any action on it. All you're doing is getting worried by it. But anyway, so Mr. Fisher, maybe he's got a good point there. Or is it Mr. Fisher? Because is this the reason why I put this into this section, David? Why do you think I offered this quote into the No Shizzle Sherlock? I think you'll know. 
Well, because it's not a quote originally that he came up with, uh, because it was an Oscar Wilde quote from uh, Lady Windermere's fan, spoken by Lord Darlington, I do believe. Yeah, I knew we couldn't get past our resident creative writing teacher. Um, the full quote is actually, a cynic is a man who knows the price of everything but the value of nothing. Um, I'm sure Mr Fisher did credit Mr uh, Oscar Wilde, so uh, let's not be too hard on him. And it's a good application to the investment world anyway. Yeah, excellent. So we're passing that one then. Yes. Excellent. Very good. Right. Let's move on then to uh, our main feature, which is tight ass Tomo. As you know, Tom Morris, our resident mean man, many moons ago now, took Chris and a colleague out to lunch, which he said he would pay for, encouraged them to have a particular thing on the menu, then revealed he had a free voucher for that particular menu. Thus was born the legend that is tight ass Tomo. Am I right in thinking, Tomo, that when you go to conferences now, people walk up to you wanting to meet tight ass Tomo? I mean, I think to say that everybody comes and taps me on my shoulder is probably embellishing a little bit. That certainly happened before. There have been some people who've overheard my voice and not seen me before. He've gone. I recognise that voice. Yes. And yeah, unfortunately, that's tight as Tomo, is it? Tight as Tomo. It's not, oh, Tom Morris, you know, charter financial planner who's, you know, a serious chap. No, it's tight as Tomo, my alter ego. So there you go. It's got you to where you are today, Tomo. Chris, before we come on to the master himself, have you got anything for us this week? Yeah, just a, just a simple one. I was just reminded of something at the last weekend when we were out at a restaurant and uh, one of the ladies in our, our little party had a, a headache. So her husband popped out to Tesco and she said, oh, can, you, can you get me a Nurofen and an aspirin? And my wife's a nurse and we just said, no, 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 just ask for ibuprofen and paracetamol. And it turned out that the total cost of the ibuprofen and paracetamol non-branded was 70p. The equivalent for the branded version would have been £7.40. I know, it's absolutely crazy, isn't it? And yet yet you go into any chemist's or certainly any supermarket, they will have the the generic stuff and it is dirt, dirt cheap. Don't buy the branded stuff. You don't need it. Yeah, it's it's, uh, 10 times as much, over 10 times. Just absolutely staggering. So there we go, that's mine. Right, Tomo, be mean to us. (laughs) Stop taking showers. (laughs) Stop bathing. Certainly don't have baths. Stop showers. Maybe have a little bit of a, you know, a basin wash, a bit of a splash around. Maybe maybe treat yourself to a shower every couple of days. Um, No, I know obviously this is just a bit of a silly, piffy one, but with electricity prices, go, no, here's one. Have cold showers instead. Have cold showers. I'm just trying to think of ways that people can reduce their their heating bills. So yeah, cold showers. Well, there certainly, you go. the energy the energy crisis is, is is serious, and I think it's affecting all sorts of people. So I live in quite a big house, and it is quite expensive to heat. And uh, I pay a direct debit across the year, which is averaged out. And before the prices went up recently, our combined gas and electricity was 170 pounds a month, which is in itself like quite high. It's now gone up to £311 a month. And that's just a massive hike. And we're on, you know, we've got a reasonable joint income. But all the same, that's that's a lot of extra money to find. And when I listen to interviews with people on the radio, I heard somebody yesterday, a woman whose husband had recently been made uh, unemployed, and her children, were. She, she was saying, have a shower once a week. Uh, I had another interview with somebody who was uh, a pensioner who was living in one room in the house because they couldn't afford to heat the rest of the house. So these things are, I know we have a bit of a laugh about these, mm. these, these tight-ass tips and, and let's carry on having a laugh about them, but let's not also forget that underneath it, there's, there's some real human stories here. 
about how we're going to cope in a world of, of rising inflation. There we are, bringing it back to money. <laughs> yes. Well, you make a really good point. And I will do a producery thing, but let's be honest, we all know Tammy's the real producer. I did mention a few podcasts ago that there are going to be some people who are making some tough decisions between heating and eating and start thinking about one of the elements of, of using your money to make you boost your well-being is helping others and helping other causes. So if you do find yourself in a fortunate enough position that you have spare funds, you know, think about places that can help people feed themselves in these difficult times so they're not having to make those tough decisions. So, uh, yeah, although it started silly, we've gone super serious because we don't want to make light of people's tricky situations, do we? Well said, Tomo. Right, let's move on then to our interview. Tell us a bit more about what we're about to listen to, Chris. Martin Stepek has done a lot of interesting things in his life, as we'll hear about. He runs a practice called Ten for Zen and is an expert in mindfulness and has been for some time. He's got lots of interesting stuff on the subject to say that might surprise you. So let's hear my interview with Martin Stepek. Martin, really good to see you again. How are you? I'm really well, and it's a beautiful, rare, sunny day here in Scotland, so all the best. <laughs> Whereabouts in Scotland are you? I'm in Hamilton, which is just 10, 12 miles south of Glasgow, oh, directly south. Beautiful part. What a lovely part to be in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So look, Martin, we want to talk about mindfulness, which is your area of expertise. I am going to just get one thing out on the table straight away, which is I'm loving this stuff and I'm I'm learning about it at the moment, but a lot of people come to this with quite a cynical view. So let's start at the, at the beginning then. What is it? It's interesting. There are two words that sometimes people conflate but are importantly different, and that's cynicism and scepticism. Now, you'll know that cynicism is essentially saying, I don't believe it, and no matter what evidence you put in front of me, I'm still not going to believe it because I'm always <laughs> young. Um, scepticism is saying a great Scottish phrase, I hate my doubts. I have my doubts. You know, I'm not sure about this stuff, but I'm open-minded enough to say, well, if you can convince me, then, yeah, I'll go with it. Let, let's see where the evidence leads. The beauty with mindfulness is the evidence is at Oxford University's Centre for Mindfulness, one of the world-class neuroscience and psychology departments, um, Harvard University, Yale. So these guys, neuroscientists, doctors, psychologists, have done essentially all the research about how mindfulness helps us mentally over time. And it's essentially a logical thing and a common sense thing, which is if you can take time out, relax the mind and start to notice things, you get better at relaxing the mind and noticing things. And if you get better at relaxing, you get less stressed. If you get better at noticing things, then you actually can start to notice some of the impulses, usually genetic impulses, drivers, reactivity, overreactivity that we all have, which quite often causes the stress that we need to rest to, to, to relieve. And when you get really good at it, you can notice all these emotions just tumbling out through through your day, through your life, and instead of being dragged away by them and the consequences of anger, frustration, irritation, grumpiness, whatever, you can actually let go of them and place your mind somewhere else. So it's essentially becoming, I was going to say, back in control of your life and your mind, but actually we never have been in control of our mind 
for most of our lives. So it's that process that, that's the important part and the consequences that, that emerge from it. So mindfulness is simply noticing. And when something is unhelpful that you notice, take your mind to something that's more constructive. When something is good that's happening, notice that you're enjoying it and that makes you enjoy it all the more. So it's simple to explain, simple to talk about, really hard to do because the mind is inherently automatic and you have to work against that grain. So there's a number of different things you've said there which we, we, which we could unpack, but one that um, I just want to touch on, first of all, you said we have never really been in control of our minds. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's, it's quite a revelation. You know, when you first learn this and when it's unpacked and explained, when you're convinced it's correct, then it really shifts everything you know about yourself and how you should live your life. If that's not too dramatic a, a phrase. We are born with a whole series of genes, and as we know this, everything, the way you look, the way I look, is genetically driven. Nobody questions that a person should look like their mother or their father or whatever. You know, it's, it's passed on. And we accept all this body stuff to do with the genes that, you know, if you get tall parents, you're likely to be tall, etc. If you've got red hair, the chances of being redheaded, etc., are higher. But the same thing is true with the emotions, the feelings, or moods, because what we call the mind it comes from the brain, and the brain's part of the body, so it's a system. So some people are genetically short-tempered. Some people are genetically kind. It's a, it's a kind of luck of the luck of the draw, you know, who draws the short straw, who draws the long straw in life. And when we start to understand this, we start to actually see that not only are our impulses and reactions genetic in origin, in other words, programs and conditioning from pre-birth, and they dominate how we view life. So you look out the window and, you know, we started with you, you asking me how I was. And I said, feeling really good because outside it's a rare sunny day in Scotland. Boom. Now, if I was in Italy, I would not have said that. I'd say, ah, it's just another sunny day. Now, that thrill is because not only genetically are we attracted to sunlight because it's warmth and life-giving, but also conditioned over time in our, in, as we grow up. So this combination of nature and nurture starts to program us into predictable ways of responding. And we don't understand the scale of that, but neuroscience now does, because neuroscientists can plug you in and see images of your brain at work, and they can see anger emerging even before you've reacted to a situation. They can see you, you've talked about being cynical, you know, or somebody being cynical. You can see cynicism in the brain. And that cynicism is a result of something. You know, nothing comes from nothing. Cynicism, a cynical person is cynical like everyone else because of a combination of how they were born genetically, the programs in there, plus all their life experiences. 
But you don't choose to be cynical. You don't choose to be angry. You don't choose to be irritated at something. It just arises. And we call it the automatic mind. And it drives the vast majority of how we live our lives. Now, even with the, the things that we seem to choose, like you have made a series of choices to get to where you are in your life career-wise. Well, <laughs> mainly. <laughs> but even the choices you made, conscious choices, like, I don't know, but your family life, you know, partner, spouse, kids, whatever, dog, you consciously decided those things and there are repercussions and consequences of them. But your choice of it is itself predetermined by your previous life experiences and your genetic tendencies. So even when we think we are choosing, we're actually conditioned to choose a particular way. So that's what I mean by most of us are not really in control okay. of our lives. Our mind is doing it automatically. Okay, so uh, our listeners, uh, regular listeners, will be familiar with um, set point theory of happiness that says that um, by the time you've, you, you're an adult, about uh, your level of happiness is set, and about sixty percent of it is from DNA. So that's right in this space as well, isn't it? So yeah. the the big question that I've always wrestled with. Um, we've got lots of ways of increasing or de decreasing short-term happiness. We can, you know, in my case, I can go out and buy some records, and even if I never listen to them, it still makes me happy. But only until I get them home and forget about them. So it's a very short-term hit. Uh, the big, the big thing that we've always been looking for is long-term increases to well-being. So I'm suspecting that that's the direction of travel in this conversation. Is that right? Yeah, and you've introduced it really helpfully from from my perspective there's a another great scottish phrase which is completely unintelligible <laughs> in scotland which is money a mickle max a muckle oh yes yeah love that, right. love that. I, I do know that one yeah and that means lots of little things make a big thing and in english we've got to in terms of finance interestingly you know look after the pennies and the pounds will take care of themselves the problem with long-term happiness is it's conceptual because it hasn't, the future hasn't yet come. So it's an idea of being happy, fulfilled, that whole Greek, ancient Greek concept of, of depth of happiness and fulfillment and purpose and meaning. We use um we use know thyself, the Greek phrase of know yeah. thyself. Absolutely. Now, what mindfulness teaches, in particular in Zen, they say, that's all rubbish. You know, it's great. I mean, it's, it's that idea that concepts are concepts. They are not real. What is real is a two-part singularity, if you like, here and now. You're where you are. I'm where I am geographically, physically. You're in a room with some really interesting books and all really interesting CDs, and I'd be really, really interested in knowing your taste in music. <laughs> so that, that's the kind of where you are. I am in a different place. What we can actually do with our lives is set by where we physically are. I can't see Machu Picchu just now. There you go. But I can see out the window and see a couple of fir trees 
neighbour's garden, which is dug up just now, and a beautiful cloudy blue sky. That's what is possible for me just now. There's also the now. If it started raining just now, then boom, that previous moment's possibility has changed. If your dog came in, your situation would be changed. Now, that's when we can live. And that's the only time we can live. When we are able to grasp that in a concrete, embedded way inside ourselves, the focus on the present moment is really not quite all that matters, but the bulk of what matters. If you screw up a moment, if you get annoyed or decide, oh, I can't be bothered, I hate life, that moment is now gone and it was lost to you. The possibility of enjoying that moment was there and now it's gone and it was an unhappy moment. If we can take care of the moments, then it's not just short-term happiness. It adds up cumulatively inside us to long-term happiness and satisfaction. And the way that works, I have a very simple, possibly simplistic model of this, but it is based on the neuroscience. So we now know about neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity being a two-part word. Neuro means messages to and from the brain. So what's going on in the mind? Plasticity means a scientific term before plastic was invented, which is the ability to be molded and shaped. When scientists tell us that we are all neuroplastic, it means that every single experience we have, whether we're aware of it or not, goes into our totality of our brain or mind and changes who we are. So if, because of climate change, it never rained again in Scotland and it was always sunny, that would change my experiences and I would change my view about life, it can, it, you know, according to that. Now, I call this good bucket and bad bucket. We can't change our genes, but we know we can switch off genes through certain practices temporarily, and that can give us a boon, say with stress, anxiety, frustration, etc. But we change through time, not just through childhood. We change all through our lives because of these experiences. And these experiences can be divided up into good experiences and bad experiences. So I consider it like you've got a good bucket and a bad bucket in your head. Because of negativity bias, which has been shown by psychology for decades now, the average person is a ratio of three to one negative states of mind to positive states of mind in a given day. And that means the bad bucket is much, much bigger and fuller than the good bucket, which is not a happy scenario for humanity. However, if we can start to be in control of the moment, and instead of just accepting a negative experience, we can, by pure attention and then changing our attention, convert it to a positive experiences, then what's happened is a, a, a would-be negative experience doesn't go in your bad bucket. So it's not adding to the negative in your mind, 
And instead, you've made it turned it into a positive. So something that wasn't going to get in your good bucket is now going in your good bucket. So you're now better by two experiences. A negative experience that didn't go in and a positive experience that did go in. Now, if you then extrapolate this through all the moments of the rest of your life... That's going to be a huge shift, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, a fundamental shift in the balance. And it's, it's good to think of it in terms of scales. Yeah. How you feel about life is only based on your genes and this balance of what your past experiences have been. If you can shift the balance, you shift how you view life. And that takes care of the long-term happiness in itself. So um, I'm reading a book at the moment, um, which, well, I'm actually reading well, six or seven books at the moment but this one's called a monk's guide to happiness by a guy called gilong subten i don't know if i pronounced that anywhere near okay thank you um and i just want to read out a line from this because i'd like you to give our listeners a little exercise something that they can do that they can actually understand and put this into practice and realize what you're talking about but i just this something that you when you were talking that just reminded me of a brilliant brilliant line from this book um he's talking about he says when we're waiting for something we often feel tense and impatient and we feel our time has been stolen from us but why not take it as time given I love that. What a brilliant, just a simple change in attitude. You're waiting for the bus. Oh God, it's gonna be 10 minutes later than I thought. Oh, great. That means I've got 10, mil, 10 more minutes to stand at the bus and, and think and be mindful. What a lovely attitude that is. It is, and I'll take that example to start with. Um, he's a monk. He's been practicing this for 30, 40 years. So he'll notice his impatience arising and very quickly, almost automatically, shifted to saying, I'm alive, that's a good thing. I'm standing, that's a good thing, not everybody can stand. I'm enjoying the view, a lot of people can't see. So this whole pile of gratitude, one thought after another, all good, all going in the good bucket, is a healthier way of spending an inevitable weight in a queue than feeling annoyed about it. So he is doing that. He's making that shift. Now, I'm not as perfect as him, <laughs> miles from it, but I've been doing this for 23 years. And so what would happen with me, say, in the supermarket and the till, the first thing you'd say is, there's only three people in the tills, you know, uh, and so there's queues everywhere. And one and of them's got to go and get a, has got a label on it. So that's, yeah, yeah, they've got to exactly. go and find another one, yeah. The other one is being a good customer service person, but annoying to you because they're chatting to the customer as they're, they're doing it, and that slows down the, the movement of the goods. Okay, so all these things go in and say, oh, goodness, can they not make it quicker? You know, and all that sort of stuff. And then you think, ah, be mindful. Hmm, that's okay. Smile, happy, I'm alive, da da da, everything's good. And then that's great. And then 30 seconds later, the impatience pops back up. <laughs> so you have to do it again. And then a minute later, it pops up again. You have to do it again. So there's an understanding that the automatic mind will not just give up nicely and say, oh, you've turned my impatience into something good. That's fine. I'll just go and take a breather. You know, No, it doesn't. It just keeps popping it up. So that's, that's essentially that example is what we should be trying to apply every moment of every day for the rest of our lives. Awareness 
of so self-awareness of feelings, moods, negative and good. And depending on what we see, what we perceive, what we notice, shifting it to something more constructive, something more nurturing of our own state of mind. I think um, one of the important things that I think people need to be aware of, and I've, I've recently been trying to do a bit of meditation and I'm not very good at it, but what I've come to realise is, nor is anybody else when they first start, um, and that's the point. Um, there's, there's, happiness is like a muscle. It takes work. It's not something that just comes naturally. And mindfulness, doubly so, more so maybe. I mean, it's all in that same principle, isn't it? It takes work and effort and training and practice. Yeah, and there's an important point to learn about meditation. Meditation is not about stilling the mind. It's not about attaining some kind of perfection. It's about doing a practice. You do the practice, and over time, the practice helps to shift things in your mind. But meditation is the setting up of mindfulness. Now, there's different types of meditation, but meditation we're talking about here is how to help your mind be mindful. Because the purpose of it, or the, the practice of it, is essentially whether you close your eyes or keep your eyes slightly open, doesn't really matter. It's you notice something. You maybe notice the breath, which is the most common thing, and you notice when your mind wanders off the breath. So quite often the mind will say, this is boring. You know, and you say, right, okay, let that go, back to the breath. So you're learning this process of trying to focus on one thing, realising that the mind won't let you, and the mind will try to take you elsewhere. Never get annoyed at the mind because that's just another distraction. And then, so you just accept that the mind does this, but then you don't follow it. You take your attention back. So what you're learning there through daily practice is to notice better, to focus better, which is helpful in all walks of life, but also to notice when your mind takes you to a place you don't want to go to. And when you do that, when you get better at noticing that, you then get better at noticing taking your mind back to where you want it to be. And that's what the example of the monk in the queue was. Yeah. He was in a place, his mind took him to another place, he recognised that the other place was not a good mental space to be in, so he took his mind somewhere else, somewhere better. So this is in, in the ancient Buddhist texts, this is actually literally called the setting up of mindfulness. And it describes a med the meditation that you do to do that. Over the years, you get better at not just the practice, but you get better at doing it in real life. And that's the whole point. It's a bit like football training or, or you know, take your own analogy. That I always tend to go to football training. That you train through the week in order to be fit and prepared for the game at the weekend. If there was no game at the weekend and you were just training, there'd be kind of no point. That's what mindfulness and meditation, the relationship, the meditation is to train you so that the game, i.e. life, in each moment, you get better at it. It's, 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 it's that relationship. And I think that is largely misunderstood by people. They think that meditation is just for its own sake. You know, it helps you relax. The relaxation and the, the peace it gives you 
are astonishingly good, but they're not the point. They're sort of lovely side effects. Yeah, yeah. Let's just try and towards the end here, just try and link this back to money a little bit, because I just 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 something that's that's occurred to me as you're talking. In all that the research and the work that I do on on money and happiness, you've got in one corner you've got people like me. Uh, who are putting this into practice with financial planning and 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 Tomo, who's also on a podcast, who delivers this with clients and, and taking the practical element of it. Over there, you've got the scientists when they're all excited and the researchers and they're doing new studies, new experiments to find out all this amazing, and the neuroscientists. And over in that corner, you've got the Buddhists going, yeah, <laughs> what? We've been doing this for two and a half thousand years? You know? <laughs> Um, and I'm learning, I'm realising that more and more, that we're all getting excited doing experiments to prove what they already know. Anyway, um, so so let's just link this back to money then. How does how, Can mindfulness bring about better financial decisions and a better relationship with money? Yeah, I think if you take a step back from the money for a second before going into it, you can see the logical connection. Mindfulness helps you manage the mind. Mindfulness therefore helps you think more clearly because you've got a less cluttered mind, a less busy mind, a less prejudiced mind because you start to notice your prejudices and gently let them go. Now, the classic combination of mental qualities that mindfulness brings is twofold. A clear mind, which is an empty mind, and a calm mind, which is peaceful. If you cannot get caught up in something, and you can think clearly about it, and you remain calm, despite maybe discussions, debates, arguments about something, then you'll make a better decision. It'll be more considerate, more thoughtful, deeper, longer longer term. Now, you start applying that to money and it starts to become fairly obvious. You know, we live in a society which we didn't choose, based on an economic system that we didn't choose, but all of that aside, that's our now. That's our here and now. In that here and now, we need to eat, and that costs money. We need to drink, and that's part of, in Scotland, it's part of our council tax bills um, with the water system. Now, so these things cost money. Moreover, life is uncertain. You will have problems. You may have health problems. You may have somebody burgles you. you so we need and we have financial structures and systems and products that can help us be more secure than would otherwise be the case. We also, or most people, will also not work for the rest of their lives. They might actually want to stop working at a particular time, and that then means you need to find another way of having money after you stop earning money and that's pensions, etc. So all of this is logical and clear thinking, but what the mind tends to do, all else being equal, is, oh, that's a lovely frock, I'll buy it. Oh, fancy car, I'll buy it. Why will I buy it? Because I've got the money. Or, oh, I don't have the money, but I can borrow the money to buy it. And that instant gratification while not bad in itself, is at odds with the clear, calm thinking of, I actually need the money for a whole lot of other things for my life, which is uncertain. I don't even know the length of it. I might die before I retire, but I might live till 100. And, and so you have to put aside a certain amount of money 
on a basis, a reasonable basis of life expectancy. And mindfulness helps you see that really, really clearly. So you make decisions, but you also then start to, mindfulness, not just compassion. And you start to see, I've got more than enough for my needs. Would other people benefit more from my money than I would benefit? I don't need a second car. I don't need this. Maybe I should give it to just now, you know, Ukraine or Syria, or there are millions and millions and millions of things that need my money. And so compassion and altruism grows through, through mindfulness, through logic. You build a clarity of vision, and that says all life is precious. And if all life is precious and you've got more money than you need, then you could actually help some of that all life with your money. Now you have to balance it, because you don't know what's going to come your way. The people who were financially sound and think clear thinking in Ukraine have now had that reasonable expectation shattered. And they have to rebuild. This happened to my dad. My dad was born in Western Ukraine when it was part of Poland before the war. War broke out. He and the whole family were deported to a labour camp in Siberia. Dad, who was expecting to inherit a small farm and become a successful farmer, ended up in Scotland after the Second World War basically a refugee with nothing. And he had to completely rethink his whole life, which included financial thinking. So nothing can guarantee his security from any situation. But what mindfulness does is it helps you see it clearly, plan clearly, and also the altruistic and the, the compassionate side of it nurtures in you, and that, that, that is its own reward. Yeah. Uh, I, I imagine it's also, uh, this is kind of what you're saying, but it, it keeps you on track, doesn't it? Um, one of our five pillars of, of financial well-being is a clear path to identifiable objectives. So you identify things in life that are going to make you happy. And that's usually when people spend time working on that. We know, the, get the research on, on happiness out. It's not a, a yacht to impress other people, to use the cliche. But the clear path is then the bit you've got to stick to. That's the kind of cash flow forecasting from a good financial planner, that kind of stuff we talk about. But then you've got to stick to it. And so I guess if you've helped, if, if you've got yourself a good plan, then the mindfulness is, is helping you stick to that plan. Well, there's two parts to it. The mindfulness helps you work out the plan, you know, with your advisor, you know, and it's amazing how many people don't have clarity about their lives. Yeah. It's the norm because this is back to the genes. The yeah. genes aren't interested in the long term. The genes are interested in surviving now. Yeah. If you survive now, that means you got tomorrow. If you survive tomorrow, you've got the next day. You know, and as long as you have kids, um, then the genes don't care if you die the next day because it's done its job. So you know, it's that way of thinking. And mindfulness helps try to create clarity about purpose in life. And the purpose, and that depends on individuals because people have got religious faith, people have got sort of scepticisms, people have got atheists. So each person has to work that out themselves. But what mindfulness taught me most of all as somebody who was brought up Catholic, lapsed when I was 12 and never found anything else to replace. Buddhism has been a huge influence. Taoism has been a huge influence, but I'm not any of those things. And I've had to work out afresh, like most people say, what is my purpose in life? So I've gone from a Catholic thing where I was 
conditioned by the age of four, which is basically, who made me? God made me. Why did God make me? God made me to know him, to love him, to serve him in this world, so that I may be happy with him forever in heaven. Now, when you don't believe that anymore when you're 12 or 13, you've got a life of trying to work it well. What should be in place of that? And what mindfulness has taught me, or my conclusion, because everybody has to work it out for themselves, is the moment matters. The moment is precious, absolutely priceless. I've lost my mum, I've lost my dad, I've lost a younger brother to cancer, I've lost an elder sister to cancer, I've lost four aunts and uncles that I loved to cancer in the last nine years, and I don't have moments with them anymore. And I was lucky in that I found mindfulness long enough to actually spend those moments with them when they were with me. And the moment is the precious jewel of life. And if I get, get the moments right, and I build my quality of mind through mindfulness and other practices, getting out in nature, etc., etc., walking, staying relatively fit and healthy, then that will take care of the rest of life itself. And to me, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, this is where Taoism is. It's basically saying purpose is a purposeless purpose. You don't need a philosophy. That's Zen. You, you just need to be fully aware of how precious the moment is and you will get there and you'll start to plan your life properly as well. Martin, I think that that's an absolutely perfect place to finish. That's a wonderful sentiment to end on. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. It's a fascinating conversation and thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks. Fascinating stuff there. I, I do like this idea that he talks about living in the moment and the notion that small moments can add up to a happy life. And I'm in the where I'm not on the hamster wheel anymore. I'm not constantly going out there having to chase the next job. Where's the next bit of money coming from? You know, my mortgage is paid. I've got a decent pension. I'm comfortably off. And therefore, that's kind of taken away a lot of the stress in my life. I heard a fantastic thing on the radio recently. Uh, and they were talking to a quite an elderly man. They didn't say how old he was, but he, he must have been well into his 70s, if not older. And he said the moment that he discovered proper happiness was when he stopped being ambitious because then he wasn't chasing after dreams. He wasn't chasing after other things. He just learned to look around and go, this is where I'm at. This is who I am. Have I got everything in my life that, that I want? Perhaps not everything, but you know what? I've got everything that I need. And that's the moment that he felt that he'd achieved true happiness and peace and contentment. Uh, and I think it is about, uh, as Martin says, it's about appreciating those small moments. And as I say, for me, it's slightly easier because I'm removed from a lot of the humdrum of, of you know, I don't have young kids and all of that stuff that Tombo's having to deal with and, with Chris, you're trying to forge ahead with your business. I'm just kind of motoring along quite happily, not in the slow lane, in the middle lane. And therefore, <laughs> I've got a little bit more time to appreciate those smaller moments. And, and, and I certainly find that that's made me a more mindful and a happier person. I think that point about ambition is really interesting. And long-term listeners will remember an interview we gave, I can't remember what episode, maybe Tom can quickly look it up, with Oliver Berkman, who's a journalist and author. Episode 27. Thank you, Tom. Was Oliver, Oliver Bergman. Um, Love that so, interview. Uh, a link in the show notes, but you should be able to find it in your various podcast feeds. 
I asked him this question about the dichotomy between ambition and happiness, and is it possible to have both? And he gave an amazing answer, and I can't remember the detail of it, so it's worth going listening to, but basically he's talking about there's a kind of intellectual curiosity that can drive ambition, or there's a wanting to be like other people that can drive ambition, and one brings happiness and one doesn't. I think that's an interesting take on that. I would just share my little thing about mindfulness, if I may, because I've changed my approach since I did that interview with Martin, because the statistic that, that absolutely blew me away was when he talked about the three to one ratio between a negative state of mind and a positive state of mind, and how this is driven from when we were cavemen being you know, constantly worried about being eaten by something. So we had to be constantly negative looking around, but that's not helpful now. So I do try very hard when I some, I'm thinking of something that's negative, I go, whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on. Is that necessary, what you're thinking about right now? Or can you replace that with something positive? I'm doing that now all the time during the day. And I'm trying to make it a habit so that it becomes automatic so that I will be happy. And I'm not quite exactly building businesses, David. Thank you for the lovely thought. But uh, I am still a little bit in that rat race. And even more important to take that moment of negative thought, hang on, hang on, is this helpful? And sometimes it is. Don't cross the road at the moment. There's a bus coming. You know, that's pretty important. But there are times when I just hang on, hang on. You've just slipped into that negative thing. Just replace it with a positive one. And it's really, really doing me good. Can I just bring it back to financial links, if I may? This this point on negativity, this three to one, it feeds into what we talked about with the no shizzle Sherlock, where people are very keen to look at their portfolios, perhaps when they've seen the markets are going down rather than being bothered at looking at when it's going up. Because we're pre-programmed to get, you know, to get a fix. It's where we get a fix off the negativity. That's why media sound negativity to us. That's why you'll see billions wiped off the stock market, but you'll never see billions wiped on the next day. That's just the way, way it works. But there is, some of you may remember Beige's biases. And one of them was this idea of loss aversion. And the majority of people feel a loss, which I would say negative, three times more than they feel a gain which is the positive. So it is a powerful thing and takes a lot of work. And that also with your finances. So when I'm talking to clients who, you know, David, you put it eloquently, because we've talked about this before. We talked about how markets will go down. And when they do go down, how can we react? Very normal to feel nervous, but it's about just knowing it's coming. You know, certainly I get, you know, the old phone call just needing a bit of uh, arms around the shoulder because we will feel loss three times worse than we feel the positive gain. Right, I think that's it. Another great interview, Chris. Thanks very much for doing that. Really great to chat to you two guys once again about all matters to do with financial well-being. And we hope that you've got something out of this podcast as well and that you will join us next time for another one of our financial well-being podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. <laughs>